Hi, I'm Anya Kotz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. Happy to be here. Happy, super excited, I should say, and happy to bring you today's conversation with Jules Evans. I've been following his work for a little while. Jenny Kellogg, who I know some of you have heard on the show, a close friend of mine who I always describe as the most rational spiritual person I know. (laughs) She definitely deserves that title. Anyway, she turned me on to Jules Evans' work. I'd heard of him and his books before, but hadn't really sunk my teeth into anything until Jenny turned me on to his substack, which was mainly about what I saw as providing a lot of nuanced and much-needed perspectives and insights and asking some really important questions about the very quickly growing psychedelic industry. And honestly, for a while, I had this idea both with Jenny and with Teo, another friend of mine who's been on the podcast, about creating some sort of workshop or course around this topic of critical spirituality, grounded mysticism, however you want to describe it. This idea of bringing the rational and the critical, just critical thinking and discernment in general, into the field of belief and mystery and mysticism is something I'm super passionate about and something, I don't know, maybe you're sick of hearing me talk about at this point, but I seem to never get enough of it. And so the three of us had this idea floating around about maybe creating something to offer around this. Jenny and I recorded a podcast Man, a few months ago now on Saturn and Pisces, an astrological transit that's happening right now that's very much about this theme of grounded spirituality, sort of how to bring the limits of the material world to the realm of that which is immaterial. And we hinted in that conversation that maybe we would offer some sort of workshop or course around it. And I very much thought that if I did do that or we did that, or some combination of people offered that, that Jules would make a fantastic addition. And so I sort of hesitated in reaching out to him to record a podcast at first, because I thought maybe I should save this conversation for some sort of workshop or course. Anyway, ironically, I think what I ended up feeling, and some conversations I had with Teo as well, that to like, get up on a soapbox and offer some sort of like workshop or course or like how to about how to approach these sort of spiritual realms in a more grounded way. Something about offering that to me felt hypocritical because this whole sort of, especially like online evangelizing around how to be spiritual, just the whole thing felt sort of off to me. And I'm in a more broad sense 
you know, thinking a lot about coming out of COVID and reflecting on what at the time felt really pressing for me and what I thought the pandemic was going to provoke in my life, but also in the collective. And what was happening was like, I felt this like big, you know, uh, spurt of energy and creative juice. And at the time it felt like, oh, right, of course, like we have more time on our hands. Everyone's online let's create an online course and offer it. And I guess what I thought was that the pandemic was going to free up this space for so many of us to, including myself, to create something like that, and that that would then last sort of perpetually into the future. And now, as several years have passed, you know, of course, like hindsight is twenty twenty. It's so funny how obvious this is to me now. But what happened was not so much like a perpetuation of what I created at the time, which included the lunar circle, my sort of introduction to astrology course, and a lot of other ideas I had for courses online. <laughs> Instead of feeling the desire to continue with those things, now that we're no longer stuck in our homes in front of screens, like I want nothing to do with any of that stuff. <laughs> and all I really want to do is be outside with my hands in the dirt, be in the garden, be involved with stuff locally do yoga, all of these things that are feel so much simpler and honestly more relaxing and just, yeah, where I want to spend my time. And so much an expression of what I'm trying to impart, you know, if what I want to impart as far as critical spirituality, grounded spirituality, yes, we need to learn things and talk about them and intellectualize them and all of that's important, but then we actually need to go out in the world and live a life and embody that spirituality or that mystery, however that looks to us. And I think that's something that came up a little bit in the conversation I had with Jules, how to best serve and use our time, especially when it comes to, yeah, spirituality. And, you know, we all have different roles to play. You know, not all of us can be the evangelist and not all of us can be the critic. And I think we sort of, you know, weave in and out of those roles depending on what realm we're in. But I do feel like I'm having a shift, an identity shift, because for a while, especially post-spiritual emergency Dark Night of the Soul back in 2017 and 2018, I felt so much this desire to be an evangelist and sort of reclaim myself publicly and you know, that was part of the reason for starting the podcast and finally feeling like I had the freedom to really say what I felt and attract people who were like-minded. But yeah, at the moment, I feel like in that in the time that has passed, I no longer really feel identified with that, <laughs> that role. <laughs> and I love having the podcast, but it isn't about me talking to you about my ideas. I think really what it's about is me just inviting you into my own curiosity and the journey that takes place as a result of that and assuming that there are other people out there curious about similar things and allowing them to take part in these conversations that I find super nourishing and fulfilling. So yeah, ultimately, I guess what I'm saying is this conversation and just my own reflections around a multitude of things have made me really think about like, I don't know if I was always better suited to be like a critic or 
you know, someone that wasn't evangelizing things or if that is just something that shifts and evolves over time. But certainly where I'm at now is less of the, this is what you should do and here are some really great things and you should follow me if you want to be free and happy. And more just like, hey, here's me, I'm living a life. If this inspires you to do things in your own life, that's great. And not that hasn't always been, you know, an umbrella or like the foundation of so much of what I talk about. I don't think I've ever really taken on the role of a guru. But still, it it is interesting to watch how we can evolve through these different roles over time and that it's okay if you know, I never want to teach an astrology class again, and maybe it's okay if I do. And yeah, always think it's important to sort of come back to this commitment to not just growth, but also also recognizing how different things that happen in our lives and in the world can affect how we embody ourselves or how we identify. And that that expression, while genuine, may not be us, right? (laughs) So I think a really interesting example of that is something that Erin Jindershaw and I talked about on Horapur. This is a podcast, if you're not familiar, that I had with my friend Erin, where we had nuanced conversations about sexuality. And the podcast, I don't know, I think we had it for about two years. We took some breaks in there, maybe it was three. And Eventually, we decided it no longer felt like something we wanted to do, and we stopped the podcast. And there were many reasons for doing that, but one major reason was that, you know, when we started the podcast, Erin and I both were in these phases of reclamation and really felt like it was our true, authentic nature to kind of shout from the rooftops about our feelings and experiences with sexuality and with relationships and I really thought that was true at the time, and upon reflecting on it, I wonder if that was more of just a phase, that this idea that I had about myself, that I, that like, to be truly myself meant to tell everyone about everything in my life and be 100% authentic all the time, was not what I was seeking, like, as an identity or as a life path, but more something I just needed to do after so many years of not expressing myself and after so many years of not being honest. But ultimately, I've realized I don't really want to talk publicly about intimate details about my, you know, my sexual experience or sexual beliefs. And that was sort of a hard pill to pill to swallow, you know, and and same about spirituality. Of course, I have big opinions and I have lots of experiences I want to share and that I think would be helpful but it becomes and is becoming more difficult for me to feel warranted in saying, here's the way it is. And I wonder if that is why I love these conversations so much, because I can engage different opinions and different experiences and different voices and not claim that I have the answers all of the time. So I know I've talked a lot about that I'm going to create this and offer this course and do this more content and da 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 and I finally feel like I have to accept that instead of talking about these practices and sharing about these practices publicly in this big realm that I I just want to do them. I just want to embody them in my real life and 
if you happen to pass through Crestone, we can chat and garden together, maybe. So anyway, that was a long ass ramble. I want to talk about a couple of housekeeping things and announcements and exciting stuff that's coming up. It seems like these podcasts are, you know, no matter how much I try, really just being released once a month now. That could change. But in the meantime, so much happens in the month and I feel like I don't get enough opportunities to talk to you all about what's happening. If you do feel out of the loop and would like to be more in the loop, Substack, I guess, and Instagram, but Substack especially is where I announce things and share things first. The link to that is A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot Substack dot com. Substack is where I have writing and post the details about our book clubs and share updates and poetry and lots of sort of bonus stuff that doesn't necessarily make it to the podcast and it's all free to join and we speaking of the book club just started our or are just starting i haven't started it yet our july book club um we are reading psyche sisters by christine downing reimagining the meaning of sisterhood this was actually a book that came up because I've lost total track of time several months ago. Could have been six, could have been two. I don't know. I posted on Instagram asking if anyone had any book recommendations, specifically talking about like historical, psychological, and maybe archetypal themes related to women's relationship with women. Something that I've been challenged by and inspired by and curious about for a long time. And one of the books that was recommended was this book, Psyche Sisters. And this iteration of the book club, I chose six books and we began at the beginning really of Aries season so I decided to make each month's book astrologically themed for wherever the sun was at that point in the sky and so we are in cancer season and so this idea of sisterhood and women's relationship with women seemed well suited to the theme so if you would like to join us again you have to subscribe on Substack and then manually opt in to get the book club emails. I send a few of them each month and don't want to bother people who don't want to hear about our Zoom discussions and scheduling and all that. So the information, I'll post the link in the episode description. I'll post all the things I talk about in the episode description. So if you don't, if you're on a walk listening to this and can't write it down, you can click on it later. But the book club link is starts the same, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot substack dot com forward slash book dash club. And we have books planned through Virgo season. And then I'll probably do more. Honestly, I'll probably release another six months of books that are can we can finish out the astrological year. So there's that. And then what else? We still have some spots for our retreat in Montana. This is a, it's called the Sex at Dawn Retreat. We offered it last year and it was so fun that we're offering it again. Also, Chris got COVID last time we offered it. So that was like profoundly inconvenient and annoying. So hopefully he will be very well this time around. It's August 20th to 25th. It is in Whitefish, Montana at our friend Cameron and Melaine's beautiful compound in, like I just said, Whitefish, Montana. And they are mixed movement artists. They have a movement school called Budokan and offer all sorts of amazing, you know, practices, everything from martial arts to mobility to yoga. And 
they take a very holistic approach to these things and are very interested on a personal level in alternate relationship structures and sexuality and relationships. They're extremely intelligent, awesome people. And, you know, what Chris and I believe in is also quite holistic, right? That how we move is the way we think and vice versa. And so we decided to offer this retreat and sort of weave in conversations. I think we're going to also have a film screening that I'll talk about more in the weeks and months to come. Movement exercises, conversations, dance, lots of opportunity to connect uh, with other people who are interested in similar things. This is not a non-monogamy retreat. This is much, much more about relationships in general, and so you're welcome to come whatever relationship structure you are in or believe in or feel is right for you. You know, at the end of the day, it is my firm belief that the type of relationship or the relationship structure that we're in has nothing to do with what's right or wrong or healthy or unhealthy, but what is much more important and vital is how honest we are with our partners and how vulnerable we are and feel comfortable sharing and all of that. And that can occur with any relationship structure, right? You can have a fucked up non-monogamous relationship or a great one or a fucked up monogamous relationship or a great one. So yeah, that's sort of the umbrella. And the link to sign up for that and get more info about the retreat is budokon, B-U-D-O-K-O-N.com forward slash events dash sex dash at dash dawn and I will post the link as well so yeah a few more spots I think there's like two or three so if you are interested in attending I would definitely recommend applying sooner rather than later more exciting things happening there's this really amazing art exhibition that's going to be happening here in the San Luis Valley where I live on July 29th it's a called an earthwork so massively huge 160 acre art piece that's taking place on land that's owned by some local potato farmers here you're going to hear sarah jones who is the wife of this fourth generation potato farmer michael she'll be on the podcast soon but this piece of art it's by marguerite humo and it's going to be located on this unusable plot of land that they have out in the valley here about 30 minutes from Crestone. And there's going to be this big opening on July 29th. There is a bus that will take people from the front range in near Denver to the valley, which is about like a three, four hour drive. It sounds amazing. And I just happened to find out about it because I've been writing articles for the local paper, the Crestone Eagle. And it did a piece on the Jones family farm, which as I mentioned, are these fourth generation potato farmers. And then as I'm interviewing them, I find out that like they're doing all these other amazing, cool things. This is like happens here in Crestone and in the San Luis Valley in general. Everyone just is doing so many different interesting things and like going to meet someone and like you think, okay, they're a writer, but then you like open some sort of awesome Pandora's box and you know, they're doing all these other things. So that was sort of what happened in my interview. And so I found out about this art piece and It's so much about what I have envisioned happening in the Valley for so long. I've talked about uh, Tau Ruspoli's Bombay Beach Biennale, this kind of arts and culture festival that happens in the Salton Sea every year that's inspired me for years. And I've always thought that this area in Colorado would be perfect for that sort of thing. And by that sort of thing, I mean 
I don't know, like apocalyptic art. <laughs> um, you know, the the county that I live in is the poorest in Colorado. And so a lot of people might come here and, and it's high desert. It's a really harsh environment. And so is the Sultan Sea, Bombay Beach, and yet ripe for art, which uh, Tao once said on the podcast was really interesting to me that artists are often flocked to the edges, right? Not just in a creative sense, but in a geographic sense. And Crestone is certainly the end. It's the end of the road, the edge right against the mountains. And yeah, it too feels very ripe for art. And it seems like other people had the same idea. So if you happen to be in South Central Colorado or close, maybe in New Mexico or Denver, definitely recommend coming down. More info can be learned about this event at O-R-I-S-O-N-S dot art. Horizons, I think it's called. I will be there. I'm also going to be writing another piece about this for the Crestone Eagle. So yeah, I'm really excited about it and hope that people can come. This is the kind of thing that inspires me so much using these landscapes creatively and honoring the land you know, in a way that sort of sparks curiosity or questioning or more of a connection for people. Okay, I think that's it for now. Also super stoked about the Crestone Energy Fair happening in mid-September. I will talk more about that as the date draws closer. But if you would like to attend, that's also a really cool thing to do down here. Um, CrestoneEnergyFair.org is where you can find more info. Okay, that is it for today. So excited for you to listen to this conversation. If you have thoughts or questions uh, or anything that you want to say as you listen or after you listen, you can comment on posts on Substack, which is really cool. So anyakots.substack.com, tell me what you thought of this episode and definitely follow Jules and his work because it's important and awesome. I am going to play you in today with a song that will make sense why I chose it when you hear it called Meet Me in the Woods by Lord Huron and yeah enjoy the song enjoy this conversation I hope it makes you think or makes you uncomfortable or makes you inspired or all of the above and I will catch you at the end of our discussion
right. I am here with Jules Evans, who I've been following your work for a little while and have wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. Although I feel like this is perfect timing because I know you were just at the Psychedelic Sciences Conference, the MAPS Conference in Denver. Yeah. So I feel quite lucky to chat with you right after getting back from that because I feel like there's probably a lot to talk about in that respect. Yeah, perfect timing. Glad to have you on. Thank you for having me, Anya. It's nice to be here and nice to meet you. Yeah. So I want to talk about the conference, but before that, maybe we can talk a little bit about your background just to give my listeners some understanding of how you ended up doing the work that you're doing. Um, you're a writer and a philosopher, and you have an organization called the Challenging Psychedelic Experiences Project. Yes. So yeah, I'm curious about your sort of journey yeah. through all of that. And yeah, how did you end up here? Right. A very quick version is my friends were doing lots of drugs at school. So, you know, in my teen years was my, was, if there was a graph of my drug experimentation, that would be the kind of peak. So it was like 15 to 18 yeah. in the nineties and, you know, going raving and that kind of thing. And I and friends had lots of amazing experiences and had some bad experiences and, Friends had worse experiences than me, but I had pretty, you know, pretty bad. Like I had a bad trip when I was 18, which led to me developing PTSD. And I had that all the way through university and for a couple of years after. So for about five years and was terrified. I'd permanently damaged my brain. No idea what was going on. Finally found help through, firstly, through a near-death experience, which is a whole other thing. Just random, amazing experience, but inexplicable. Yeah. Then through cognitive behavioral therapy, it's slightly more terrestrial. And I was at that time working as a journalist. I'd done English literature at uni and I was a, I was actually a business journalist. I lived in Russia for a few years, but I, in my late twenties, I started to research cognitive behavioral therapy. I interviewed the people who developed it and discovered that they'd been inspired by Greek philosophy particularly mm. Stoicism. So I started to write about the revival of Greek philosophy in modern life. I started a blog when I was 30 called Politics of Wellbeing. That was my first blog. And I organized the first gathering of Stoics for two millennia in 2010. There was only 12 of us. It was a small movement in those days. Yeah. And I published my first book, Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, in 2012, which was about the revival of ancient Greek philosophies today, particularly Stoicism. And it had stories of people who'd used these ancient philosophies in gnarly real-life situations, like mm. in wars and prisons and addiction problems and so on. But at the end of that book came out, it did great, came out in 26 countries and, you know, was part of this revival of Stoicism, which is now quite, you know, visible. Yes. But at the end of that book, I was like, I've talked in this book about very rational approaches to well-being and healing. Greek philosophy is all about self-knowledge and self-control. But I said, there was another side to ancient Greek culture, which was about the ecstatic surrender of control, non-rational states of consciousness, not the Socratic, but the Dionysiac. And that was slightly teeing up my next book, which was The Art of Losing Control. And that was asking, what are ecstatic experiences? How do we find them in Western culture? 
after 300 years of marginalizing ecstatic experiences? When are they good for us and when are they bad for us? So I was basically edging from the rather rationalist world of Stoicism into the more spiritual world of the New Age. And that's when I started to write about psychedelics again. And really the main argument of that book was, look, ecstatic experiences are normal. They're human. We can't know for sure what they connect us to, but we can look at whether they're good for us and bad for us. And a lot of the times they're really good for us. But the book was also trying to be balanced and saying not always ecstatic experiences are sometimes bad for us. They can, you know, make you crazy, make you kind of psychotic or just anxious and bewildered. They can, you know, they can be weaponized by cults, by fanatical movements. They can be commodified by the market. So they're not always great. And what I concluded was that Western culture has a rather naive and problematic relationship to ecstatic or spiritual experiences. Mainstream culture, particularly in Europe, still tends to kind of think they're just weird and stupid and mad. So if you talk about having an ecstatic experience in European culture, you're likely to be considered deluded. However, there are these subcultures, which may be a less and less subcultures now, like ecstatic Christianity, like new age spirituality, like psychedelic culture, And they tend to have the opposite kind of relationship to ecstatic experiences. They can fetishize them and say, ecstatic experiences are always great. They're always true. They're always reliable and give me more. And so what we lack at the moment in Western culture is a balanced, mature attitude to ecstatic experiences where they're often healing, but not always. Not everything that Mama Ayahuasca says to you on a trip is necessarily true. Not every person that you have an ecstatic experience in the presence of is necessarily holy. And these kinds of nuanced, mature relationship to ecstatic experiences. After that book, I co-edited a book about spiritual emergencies, which is a term developed by Stan and Christina Groth to describe spiritual experiences that are messy and sometimes quasi-psychotic. And this was the first book to gather together people's stories of their spiritual emergencies, 14 stories, real life stories. And we asked people to write about what were they like? What do you think may have triggered it? And what helped you come out of this kind of spiritual crisis? And I wrote a chapter in that book as well about a a messy post-Ayahuasca experience I had. Okay, so the end of the story is that two years ago, I wrote an article saying this was at the height of the psychedelic boom, saying, okay, billions are being raised for psychedelic companies and psychedelic research, but there's very little research on the downside of psychedelics, on the harms and on the risks. And I said, we need to learn more about the harms and what helps people who experience them, you know. I personally had experienced harms, and I knew lots of others who had, but it seemed like the story about psychedelics had gone from quite negative in, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s to kind of an overly one-sidedly positive story in the media and in psychedelic culture. So last year, I and a team of psychologists started the Challenging Psychedelic Experiences Project. I raised the funding and had the idea, worked with psychologists at 
Greenwich University, Imperial, uh, University College London. And yeah, we've published two papers so far. Well, one has been published in a journal, one's in preprint because it just came out last week. And we're looking at particularly at not so much bad trips. There's a bit of research on bad trips, but difficulties after trips. That could be everything from two weeks to decades. Mm-hmm. And again, we want to know what kind of problems do people have? What are they like? And what did they find helpful in dealing with it? So I just went to this enormous, biggest ever psychedelic conference in the world, like Psychedelic Science in Denver, which was 13,000 people. And we had a poster on our research. We also have a substack called ecstaticintegration.org. And as I wrote yesterday, I felt that there were no panels on extended harms, on things like hallucination persistent perception disorder, which is people who experience continued visuals after tripping. There was nothing on derealization, nothing on existential confusion, and there was nothing on what evidence-based treatments help people because there's no research yet on what evidence-based treatments helps people with these conditions. I mean, so in my piece, I said, we're 20 years in to this psychedelic renaissance. Like, why has there been no research? But I did see, encouragingly, people saying things like, we need to talk more about risks. But that's different to funding and research and proper support. So it's not just about the conversation. It's also about what we know, where we direct funds. I met someone at this conference who'd flown from Argentina to be there, paid 800 bucks for a ticket because they'd smoked DMT two years ago had a frightening out-of-body ego dissolution experience and had felt destabilized for the two years since. Nightmares, panic attacks, fear of going to sleep, fear of going crazy. And they flew there to try and get information and support. And at the moment, there, you know, there isn't that much. Yeah, I'm curious because I feel like if part of your, it sounds like you've been weaving in and out of these fields and topics and experiences for quite some time, but I do feel like there's been somewhat of a shift relatively recently, which although the psychedelic renaissance has been around, like you said, for all of these years, the sort of like commercialization and commodification And an example being how many people were at this conference, right? I think you said in your article that the last time this conference happened, there were a few thousand and now there were 12,000 or something. Yeah. So, you know, this person buying the ticket from Argentina, I feel like it's only relatively recently that we could say, oh, okay, here are these experts who should know how this goes. But I wonder if we're actually just very much at the beginning. I see a lot of naivete, I feel like, in this sort of big business. Yeah, so the research into psychedelics restarted about 20 years ago. And there have been some papers, but you're right, not loads. But there are people who argue the science is settled. That's it. We know that they help people. And that was what persuaded Australia to approve psychedelic therapy for PTSD and treatment-resistant depression people lobbied the Australian regulator and said, look, the science is settled, you know, it's done. So next month they're starting this, but there are these big research gaps. There's been these small studies which show that psychedelics can 
genuinely be healing for some people. And I don't discount that. Particularly desperate people with PTSD, people with treatment-resistant depression, people with chronic headaches and so on, chronic pain. But yeah, there's been no proven phase three FDA study. So these are still quite small studies. We're waiting for the results of MAPS's long effort to try and get FDA approval for MDMA therapy. We're waiting for Compass's results for psilocybin for depression. So they haven't totally been proven. We don't know how much is hype, how much might be researcher bias. We don't yet know how effective they are. Are they as effective as antidepressants? Way more. That has, that's not settled yet. And there are areas, important areas, where we have no research at all. Like we're just beginning to see some research on extended harms, extended adverse events, including ours. We just pre-published a paper last week. But like I said, there's basically nothing, as far as I'm aware, on if you have a bad trip and you feel anxiety for weeks or months, or you have derealization or some other kind of harm, what should you do? I didn't know what to tell this guy from Argentina. I was like, okay, I can put you in touch with this person or that people, but I need to be honest. You need to tell us what you find out as well. At the moment, the experts in what helps are the people who experience those harms themselves. But in terms of the business side of things, that's really in the last three or four years. So from 2020 to 2021, there was this short shroom boom, this kind of psychedelic boom where there were some IPOs that raised hundreds of millions. And everyone was like, wow, this, you know, this, well, everyone's going to be rich. And a lot of companies started and you could get funding and investment with some pretty, pretty sketchy business plans. But things have changed. What happened then interest rates went up and a lot of companies have gone bust in the last year. A lot of ketamine companies have gone bust. Some retreat companies have gone bust. The biggest you know, IPO of the psychedelic companies, their share price has gone down 92%. And it's now not totally clear how to make money in this space. Certainly not how to make big money. Are people going to spend thousands for psychedelic therapy when you can grow your own mushrooms repeatedly? Are they going to pay for that repeatedly? I'm not sure. We don't know. But it's not obvious. MAPS, this big psychedelic company, has been trying to find equity investors and it hasn't found much. And they have results which show that MDMA can apparently help, MDMA therapy can help 60% of people recover from PTSD, according to their early studies. But that's pretty good. I'm surprised they can't find money then. So even though this is a big razzmatazz conference and thousands of people, it's still not clear what the future of psychedelics will be. Will it be decriminalized and little corner store dispensaries? Will it be big corporate biotech? Will it be churches? Will it be just, you know, I don't know. So it's not clear. Yeah, I'd love to talk about the whole movement behind it too. I lived in Amsterdam in, gosh, like 2008. And I remember I was there for one year and the first half of the year, mushrooms, psilocybin was still legal and you could still purchase it like you would marijuana with a menu and all of this. And then... I think it was like the straw that broke the camel's back, but there was some French young woman tourist who got really drunk and took mushrooms and jumped off one of the bridges into the canals and died. And that this sparked this, you know, outrage and they then made mushrooms illegal. 
that may have changed again but uh -huh. when I was there it became illegal so you could get them in a very safe way and then you had to like once again buy them off the street but it seemed to me there which I mean Dutch culture is super interesting like the Dutch are not really super into any of these drugs in the first place it's much more like a tourist operation but in America it seems to have taken on this religious you know like theologic quality, which is something you write a lot about. Just to give you some background on me too, I really didn't do a lot of psychedelics growing up. I did them once in Amsterdam, actually, when I lived there, but then was like not super interested. But I had a pretty intense spiritual emergency about six years ago after getting divorced and just just sparked by like a life crisis, really. I felt like I was on drugs all day without uh -huh. them. And now looking back, think that I was absolutely like flowing in and out of states of mild psychosis. Like, mm. and so it wasn't difficult for me to like draw comparisons to what I went through. And also I got super interested in astrology during this time, which I think mm -hmm. was, was really mostly an interest in Greek mythology and archetypal psychology. But within that world too, like I would love to hear how you cope with this because I feel like in fields of rationality I find myself pushing for like the more mystical and in fields of the mystical I'm like guys we need to you know be a little bit more critical here and it seems like you are the same right that it seems that both of these worlds would be helped by borrowing from the polarity perhaps. I completely agree uh, yeah thanks for Telling me a bit of your story and yeah. yeah, those kinds of spiritual emergencies really interest me. And you're absolutely right that they can be triggered by just life events. I mean, I came across stories of, you know, people who had spiritual emergencies triggered by the pandemic. Yeah. Or someone I know had a spiritual emergency triggered by Brexit initially or bereavements and so on. And it's interesting that there was this kind of archetypal Thing. I mean, that's quite common as well in these kinds of experiences, that archetypal material, people get very into myths, archetypes. Yeah, so that's quite common in other people's stories too. And like you said, I couldn't find, there was so little. And now, even six years later, there's so much more. But at the time, I felt totally lost as to what was happening. And there was a woman, actually, who I did this astrology apprenticeship with, who had sort of been in these worlds for quite some time and is like the most rational spiritual person I know and was very helpful, gave me the spiritual emergency book. We've had multiple conversations on the podcast about it. I mean, you are someone and I think I am someone, too, who like believes in these things in many ways. Ecstatic experience can, like you said, be super helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fundamental Thing that I'm interested in in my life like yeah. maybe the fundamental thing is the dialogue between the Socratic and the Dionysiac between the rational and the non-rational in our minds and in our cultures I was obsessed at university with this book by Nietzsche called The Birth of Tragedy and he talks about the Apollinean and the Dionysian Every essay I wrote at university, I'd always be like, and as Nietzsche said, and it was like, I was like a kind of bad chat GPT. I just always came out with the same analysis. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter what, you know, what I was, so I was writing about Keats or Jane Austen. I'd be like, ah, oh, the Dionysian and the Apollinian, you know? So I was, I was, and then, and that's why, you know, guess what? When I wrote my first two books, like 10 years later, the first was about the Socratic and the second was about the Dionysian. 
And yeah, you're right. When I was a kind of stoic, I was very into the rationality, but I was like, yeah, but what about ecstatic experiences? And when I was writing The Art of Losing Control, I was like, yeah, but this is all, you know, where's the critical rationality? Where's the critical thinking? Those things, those aspects of our culture and of our minds are always in a bit of, they're never going to be perfectly harmonized. There's always a bit of tension between them. But I, you know, I definitely see the value of both and emphasize, and it depends where, you know, where I feel like my culture is as well, in terms of what I emphasize, you know, in the, when I was writing The Art of Losing Control in about 2015, in the UK is an incredibly secular culture. It doesn't have much, much more than the US. It really doesn't have much, you know, if you look at British, the BBC, there's nothing you'd never guess that humans have spiritual experiences, right? It's just not mentioned. So there's nothing about spirituality. We have no Oprah in UK culture. Spirituality, like Christianity, is much more mainstream in the US and even more so in California. So I, you know, I left the UK and one of the reasons was I didn't feel at home in that extremely secular, extremely like this world culture. But then what I've seen in the last kind of three or four years, as ecstatic experiences have gone more mainstream, as psychedelics have gone more mainstream, as wellness culture has gone more mainstream, I've found myself moving from a position of, hey, be more open to ecstatic experiences to kind of, yeah, but don't believe everything. I think what also happened in the last few years was during the pandemic was I started writing about conspirituality the overlap between new age spirituality and wellness culture and conspiracy theories. And I was, I got sucked into the kind of COVID wars, you know, about, about vaccines, but also about kind of truth and conspiracy culture more generally. And I was, I wrote very critically about, about kind of conspirituality. And really, you know, I now look back a little bit, critically at my own position you know some people maybe me sometimes turn into like the information police because this was a public health crisis and nuance gets lost in you know during a pandemic and so anyway I became quite disenchanted in the last three years with new age culture and I probably shifted from a position that was like gnostic to agnostic from gnostic you know there is something more than the self there is a mystery because I've had you know, I had a near-death experience, which was incredibly healing to me. But I feel more agnostic now in the sense of, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to make sense of that experience. Uh, and I have this sense of the limit of our capacity to know what that mystery is, to know what that something more is. Yeah. I had, when I was like 24, and I had PTSD for about five or six years, and I was desperate. I had bad social anxiety in my self was very fragmented and I was I couldn't get over it I was like my life has got significantly worse I think myself is damaged and I can't see how I'm going to live my life and I had a, a skiing accident where I fell off from you know skied off the side of a mountain fell 30 feet and at the moment of impact had a white light experience where I felt immersed in light and love and had this strong sense like you're fine you're okay there's something in you that can't be broken like your soul and that was very healing for me 
having thought I was broken for five or six years to be like, oh, there's something in me that can't be broken. I can relax. And also being filled with love for myself, for other people, for life. So that was incredibly healing to me. And then in that experience, I also got this information. What's messing you up is your own beliefs. I mean, that's not, I don't know, maybe I knew that already, but, you know, I got it in a very direct, strong way. And that's what led me to things like stoicism and CBT, which are based on the idea that what causes suffering are your beliefs. So I then was like, in my late 30s, when I was writing The Art of Losing Control, I was like, how do I get more of that? How do I get closer to that, whatever that Mm. was? How do Mm. I understand it? How do I make that more real in my life? And I tried to be a Christian, joined, you know, a church, gave my life to Jesus because I was like, well, they're talking about divine love. I mean, it's pretty similar. And, you know, they definitely, you know, they've got a religion they've developed for 2000 years and they have an infrastructure and they have a community. And they, you know, and that community has good values about humility and service to others. Mm -hmm. I could be a Christian, sure. But, you know, and it couldn't be, you know, because... You know, there was enough specifics of the theology that I couldn't sign up to. And that was after a year and a half. I was like, I just don't think I can agree that Jesus was the only son of God who died for our sins and that you can be saved by, you know, acknowledging that. I was like, I wish I could because I think I like Christian community. Yeah. I mean, and I'm talking in the UK here, so maybe, you know, this is... The Church of England, so it's pretty chilled, you know. You yeah, can, yeah. But even then, like, but then, and I saw, so you know, after five years of trying to understand that experience and be closer to it, I was like, I don't think I'm going to. That's the truth. I was yeah. very lucky to have had it, but it's a mystery. So I feel like I'm an agnostic now. And I also think it's, that's not a bad way to be in terms of not being overconfident about your gnosis, about your truth. I think there's a good good kind of humility there to kind of say, well, I'm not, you know, who knows? We can make guesses about what's ultimately going on in the universe, but they are just guesses. But someone might say to me, that's pretty weak. You know, that's not going to fire people up to many good works. You know, there's something, but not sure what, you know, but that's where I ended up. Yeah. I relate to so much of that. Also went through a Jesus phase there for a little while for many of the same reasons. (laughs) But yeah, all of it. I mean, I really do think a lot about or try to analyze like why, like what is going on in relation to the sort of spiritual renaissance that to me includes things like astrology and tarot and psychedelics and to me they're all kind of linked in many ways i've done quite a bit of reading and research about how these uh, plants were used traditionally it's my understanding that like it was the shaman that took the psychedelics to help heal the people not the people coming for healing that took the psychedelics i mean and let alone like the shaman having an Instagram account or like a business. It seems, and maybe you could talk a bit about this because I know you've researched like ecstatic experiences extensively, is part of what's going on and part of the issue is that we're trying to take something that comes from a culture and a worldview that is very different from ours and we lack the system or the structure, the context 
to have any idea how to integrate these things in a way that makes sense. Like to me, when I'm struggling with discernment, like around any of these things, what I look to is like, you know, what's the business model behind this? And is this person scaling things and what claims they're making? The more commodified and commercialized it is, the more I feel terrified of that. But I wonder right. if for most people that's comforting, if that's part of what's going on is the overlay of Western culture. Right. Well, yeah, you made some really good points. I mean, so first of all, the big point is, I think you're right. What One of the big thing that's happening is a revival of interest in ecstatic experiences and spiritual experiences, mystical experiences, and a shift in our historical attitude in Western culture. 300 or 400 years of pathologizing these experiences, marginalizing them. And then since the 60s, and even more in the last few years, they're going more mainstream and the shift in public attitudes towards more openness towards them, curiosity, even eagerness and hunger for these kinds of mystical type experiences. And you see that in data like Gallup asked Americans, have you ever had a mystical experience? And in 1962, just 20% of Americans said they had. In 2009, it was 49%. I'm sure it's more. I'm sure yeah. it's over 50% now. And yet, as you say, this is like the Reformation in a way. This is like, a, you know, the Reformation, one of the things the Reformation was suddenly people saying, hey, we don't need the church. Let's, we can have direct mystical experiences. And you had a lot of crazy cults running around for a few, you know, a few decades. And you had wars, religious wars and fanaticism and people saying, I'm the Messiah. And, you know, and that was actually the beginning of Western culture's you know, shift in attitudes to these experiences, like even Martin Luther saying, this is just crazy enthusiasm. This is fanaticism. So we're seeing a bit of that. We have what I call ecstatic illiteracy. We don't have maps, guides, spaces that have been tested for decades or centuries. We are new to this kind of experience and we're messing up, but that's to be expected. So that's the big picture. And, you know, my Substack's called Ecstatic Integration, and it's really, its main theme is how do we improve our ecstatic literacy, including like critical thinking, not being so gullible, and looking for bad actors in the space, because nothing draws Machiavellian sociopaths like spirituality, because you can access people with wide eyes in altered states with their critical thinking switched off, and sometimes with lots of money. And that's just like the perfect hunting ground for Machiavellian narcissistic sociopaths who may be driven by desire for sex, money, or just for people to worship them. Secondly, you talked specifically about plant medicine and the popularity and fashionability of, of kind of Amazon shamanism and in indigenous psychedelic culture in the West now. And you're right, there's, you know, there, there's certain issues and problems with that in just the massive difference between modern urban, you know, Western culture and indigenous plant shamanism. I mean, there's, I went on an ayahuasca retreat in Peru. I wrote a little book about it called Holiday from the Self. And I was astounded by this culture, by Shipibo Indian 
ayahuasca shamanism extraordinary you drink this potion and then the shamans sing you know songs in front of you calling in plant spirits and you know they're guiding you in these altered states absolutely extraordinary but you know incredibly different incredibly different to our culture you know animist plant shamanism i'm not, you know i'm not surprised if some people experience severe culture shock it's also been packaged in a certain way for Westerners yeah. in a very neo-Christian way. Ayahuasca is love. Ayahuasca is there to heal your trauma. Basically, you know, when you go to church, often Jesus is like a life coach. You know, Jesus is there to help you with your career, help you with your back right. pain. And Mama Ayahuasca is a bit like that kind of Jesus, here to heal your trauma, here to, you know, make you the best you. So there's all kinds of aspects of Amazon shamanism that have missed out of that commodification. Like, as far as I understand my reading, the model of illness and healing that you find sometimes get in Amazon shamanism, if you're ill or your life's not going well, it's probably because someone cursed you. And the Amazon shaman and ayahuasca can help you find who cursed you, remove the curse and possibly curse them back. So it's a lot about power and magic and curses and battles. That is all left out of the commodified version, which is just kind of gabble mate. Hey, we've all got trauma. Help you to shed your generational trauma. Even the categorization of it as a medicine, I mean, I think is a cultural overlay. Like the fact yeah. that that's what we're calling it in this culture. I'm not super convinced that's what it's been considered. Yes, I think it could be called medicina sometimes, but now everything is medicine, like in chocolate's medicine, and this is medicine, you know, someone used the term traumadelic, you know, the trauma healing frame has become so powerful in wellness culture and in psychedelic culture. And it's right. not only about that, I think it can be about that in, in shamanic culture, but it's also about power. It's also about love and sex. You know, if you look at adverts for curanderos, it's often bring your husband back or find your lover or, or just find things that you've lost. So it's quite practical as well. It's yeah. all curse your enemies. But so, yeah, there's just kind of big cultural differences. And you're absolutely right that it's become very commodified. You know, we're trying to work out the business model. And that's, you right. know, even if you're starting a psychedelic religion, you need to get money somehow. So then you ask for donation, but then do you ask for donations when people are high? Hopefully not, but some do. And so everyone's got to make a living and even Christian priests make a living. I mean, they have, you know, Christianity is a business structure as well as a theological structure. You know, you, you, they ask for donations. Sometimes they ask for 10% of people's incomes like tithing. So psychedelics is also trying to figure that out. And mm -hmm. That's how it is. You've always got to have some business model, but some models are particularly predatory or particularly bullshit. So I think we should be realistic. Everyone's got to make a living. But we can also try to be clear-eyed that psychedelic capitalism is so young that there are some incredibly sketchy operators in this space that haven't been found out yet. Yeah, And many who have who continue to work there. I mean, that's, or work in these yeah. spaces. Yeah. yeah, because this is what what's happening is like 50 years of the underground beginning to merge into the overground. Mm -hmm. But the, a lot of people in this space have known each other for years. 
they've taken drugs together they've they've often slept with each other and so there are bad practices and bad actors which haven't really properly been or only just being scrutinized in the overground and there's a lot of old friendships and alliances and relationships or just people who know you know where the bodies are buried and so they get to kind of stick around so yeah i mean i try not to be too critical and too disenchanted as some people say to me if this is like learning to drive or like learning climbing or learning kite surfing it's a kind of relatively new activity in our culture and it'll take us a bit of time to get okay at it and people are going to get hurt and people are going to make unintentional mistakes and there will also be bad actors in in the space and that's so it's a process so, you know critical thinking is is part of that process but there's also something interesting and good happening which is the opening up to this side of human nature of spiritual experiences of altered states of consciousness also maybe opening up to different models of reality like beyond materialism and also different models of healing like that you can heal through altered states of consciousness through trance states there's there is some big positive things happening as well yeah yeah i feel the same it's like not many days go by where i don't think about this conundrum and sort of analyze my own critique you know i mean aside from my own experiences which i consider to be relatively mild like a friend of mine accidentally overdosed on LSD and with her boyfriend who almost killed her because he thought she was a demon. Wow. So like, I've definitely, I can see the harm, but I've also done psychedelics myself and witnessed like a lot of people be supremely helped by them. And I feel the same about these other spiritual practices too. I don't know sometimes where yeah. to put my feet down with it because I think you know, like what's worth it in the process of making these things more available to people, you know, like that judgment call for me is perpetually difficult to make because I look yeah. at like the world, the Aubrey Marcus world, for example, and I think surely people in that world are being helped. I think it's like a little bit superficial and potentially centering the wrong things, but like maybe it's super helpful for people or that yoga retreat, you know, in Tulum is like really assisting someone and who am I to critique it? And yet then I kind of flip flop over to like, but is that really happening? Is it really, is it going to be a net positive in the end? Or, you know, are we gonna screw it up by being yeah. too overly enthusiastic or something? I've been thinking about it as well. Like what's the best use of one's efforts? Mm -hmm. and of one's voice and I you know I think two things there's also about one's own I mean like critical spirituality is, it, is its own practice but I it can't be I don't want it to be all my practice <laughs> yeah. just I'm just going oh look, look, at, look at that dodgy shaman and oh that, that, you know this is a cult and something and that's it because that's it's a bit easy as well like kind of you know pointing the finger at charlatans and I, and I, you know, during the pandemic, I wasn't meditating. I was just a real in disenchantment, skeptic mode. Mm -hmm. So I, that can't be all I do. But the other thing is, you know, I do think there's a value to the 
we're serving our culture if we're identifying with kind of spiritual culture in the broader sense of the word we're serving our culture in encouraging discernment which is a word you used earlier and critical thinking that's playing a useful role in the ecosystem and in terms of kind of boosterist boosterism and cheerleading there are people like Aubrey Marcus and Andrew Huberman doing that and they have huge audiences you know let's think of it as a symphony if there's already like a lot of violins you don't need to go and play the violin (laughs) someone's got to play the tuba (laughs) totally this is my whole podcast philosophy by the way yeah there are people like with joe rogan you know the most popular podcasts in the world they are very much boosting psychedelics and spirituality and they're not saying much if anything about harms and so in that you know in that orchestra or in that symphony yeah we, we, you need you know someone playing the timpani or the juba that's otherwise it's unbalanced yeah when someone takes too much lsd and has an awful experience they'll be like completely bewildered because they're like i listened to aubrey marcus and and you know or andrew human they said it was they said it was mm-hmm. i was gonna have an incredible healing mystical experience yeah. so it doesn't mean it's the whole story. You know, like I've said, I think, you know, some people are going to be massively healed by psychedelics. Some people are just going to get high and some people are going to get hurt. And let's just talk about it. The more, and at the moment, I think positive stories get uh, much more prominence. You know, the psychedelic science, we, there were testimonials from people, only positive testimonials, right. only veterans mm-hmm. saying they had, you know, chronic headaches and they were helped which I love those stories. Anytime someone is suffering and they find something that, that helps them, that's fantastic. But no stories, you know, the guy from Argentina, he's not on any panel. No stories of people who've been hurt. People talking quietly and privately, you know, yeah, listen, I had a friend and he had a bad trip and he killed himself, for example. That's what uh, one story I heard or, or someone else, a researcher who said, yeah, they had like bad derealization for months you know, but they talk about it privately. And I encourage people to talk about those kinds of things publicly and to make it part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. These drugs aren't risk-free. Harms happen. Sometimes those harms can last months or years. We just published this paper in, this, in the survey we did. We asked people, have you ever had a bad trip? Not a bad trip. Have you ever had a psychedelic experience that led to difficulties which lasted longer than a day? We got over 600 responses a third of our responses, their difficulties lasted one to th- uh, three years. And a sixth of our responses lasted longer than three years. Um, so these, these issues can last decades. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, oh, you shouldn't take these substances if you have a family history of psychosis. Like sometimes people don't have a family of history of psychosis and they still have bad trips. And they might even take the psychedelics in safe guided sessions. 8% of our respondents had taken psychedelics in a clinical trial or a therapy session. So you might do everything right and you still might have a bad experience which leaves you shaken. But we're trying to learn about the things that increase the risks of having extended difficulties. So we are trying to learn, like it seems for example, in some early data, if a woman, you're more likely to have an adverse experience than a man, Mm. you know, or if you're, if you don't have a strong support structure to go back to, that could make difficulties more likely. Mm. If it's in an unguided session versus a guided, 
that may make it more likely. So there are some kind of factors, but again, we have a lot to learn. If certain types of difficulties happen, what should you do? Like we, we've got a lot to learn. I encourage like more funding for this, but more researchers working on it, more communication between those researchers. Yeah. And then organizations that we can refer people to mm-hmm. for when we have a better idea of what helps if you have HPPD yeah. or if you have derealization, for example. Yeah. And I would think that some of that research should be, you know, focused not just on the risks that like the individual might arrive with, but also the sort of structural things. Like I I wanted to talk briefly about this whole psychologization of psychedelics and the whole like fix yourself as an individual framework, which I think also ties into what you were just saying of people not having a community to go back to, right? Like so much of an initiatory experience is being like welcomed back by people who know you in this new phase of life. And when you go back and people are like, you know, thinking you're crazy because you're talking about all these things that happened, that that doesn't go super well. Right, right, right. And I saw you, you posted something that then sort of generated a whole conversation on my own Instagram account about this whole idea of net zero trauma And I do wonder if that's, I just can't imagine that's the right approach because I, it it doesn't make any sense to me, but what I wanted to specifically talk about is this idea that it's up to us as an individual to eradicate trauma, right? And not that perhaps this trauma might be being fed by you know, the same forces that are looking to have a net zero trauma world by 2070. Mm. Is this reinforcing some of our like shame and guilt about how broken we are and that we can't figure it out? Right, right, right. Yeah. There are certainly people arguing that. And I think they have a point. You know, I've got a friend, Adam Adronovich, who runs this funny Instagram called Healing from Healing. He's a medical anthropologist and he worked at an ayahuasca retreat as well as a facilitator. Mm. And he very much thinks that psychedelics has been packaged as a kind of neoliberal solution to say, you know, the problem is in your psyche. Here's a magic pill. We can make you better. He thinks very much that there are structural and collective reasons why there's so, so much mental illness at the moment um, to do with climate, you know, the climate crisis, inequality, meaningless jobs, various other forms of injustice. And that the idea that, oh, here's a magic drug that's going to solve all that, which I think is, is one of your points. Yeah. I also think that, you know, going back to what you're saying about the religiousness of medicine mm-hmm. and wellness culture, particularly in the States, like we, we need to see that, you know, American Christianity has intersected with wellness and medicine for 200 years. And that when new kinds of treatments often arise or develop, there's a religious fervor around them. And this has happened before. And they become faddish. And everyone's like, we, we got to introduce them because like people are dying and the, yeah. in the human race is in crisis. So we need to roll this out as quickly as possible. And then treatments get evangelized and rolled out really quickly without being properly scrutinized. And this has happened over and over again in the last 150 years. And, you know, it was all too obvious at this conference where Rick Doblin, you know, the head of MAPS came out in a white suit 
in front of this big sign saying net zero trauma by 2070 and we want to raise a million dollars this week and standing ovation even in the journalist seats in the press seats where I was standing ovation and I was like wow this is very religious this is you know this is the American religion of wellness is very strong yeah and what can you um, can you just explain what what did that mean net zero trauma by 2070 was there like an explanation of that well if, and it was a, it sounded like a late night decision yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. After, after some good week but he said we're going to develop a new measurement which is gross national trauma uh-huh. and we want no new trauma by 2070 that we're just working to get rid of old trauma and this is also this idea which i think you can also sometimes see on the left which is we just need to fix certain things either in you or in the environment, and then, you know, there'll be no more suffering. And in the neoliberal model, we just need to fix things in your head, and then there'll be no more suffering. Maybe your thoughts, maybe your brain chemistry. But, you know, in the the left-wing model, we just need to fix capitalism and all attend activist meetings more, and then there'll be no more suffering. The great promise of, of Marxism, and I think there's just, you know, like, these are both utopian schemes, right. and I'm suspicious of utopia. Um, I think things can make things slightly better. Fair wages can definitely make life slightly better. I also think that, like, cognitive behavioral therapy can make life slightly better for some people. Yeah. So I think both the left and this individualist therapy response, they're not totally wrong, but... A life free of suffering, a life free of trauma, I think that, you know, that's the existence we're in. That's the human condition. Uh, It's hard and involves illness and aging and death. I mean, there were investors there saying, hey, we're going to solve death too. This is the next big thing. Never mind psychedelics. Which is um, super ironic. A friend of mine who had this very averse psychedelic experience with her partner said that she found it super ironic because to her so much of this whole magic pill net zero trauma stuff was like an expression of fear of death and like the same you know desire to think we have control over these things when we really don't right if we can just find the solution if we can just evangelize around the solution we don't have to sit in the pain and the grief of the fact that we're not in control. We probably won't, we're, you know, we might figure out our own stuff, but we're probably never going to come close to figuring out, you know, the planetary issues. And that, that I find that my spiritual practice now is very much just honoring the mystery, you know, like I think I too have become more and more agnostic. And so when I see these kind of what feel like neurotic control issues around solutions that's what it tells me is this fear of letting go and this fear of grief which in the psychedelic world is super ironic to me because like to me that's kind of the point of those experiences is to let go yeah (laughs) this is true and there's definitely some of that apocalyptic thinking at this conference the human race is facing extinction that's why we've got to we've got to get these psychedelics out as quickly as possible and literally um that's what Rick Doblin thinks. That's what yeah. the head of maps thinks. And even 
like the head of Johns Hopkins Psychedelic Lab, Roland Griffiths. He said, we need to talk about risks. There are risks. But he also said the human race is facing an existential crisis. Its existence is threatened. Psychedelics can help. When the stakes are so high, then, you know, who cares if 10% of people get hurt? And who cares if there's some abuse issues which aren't really addressed? Right. Like, utopia is right there. We've got to do it because, you know, and I mean, I've written about the history of eugenics and eugenics was rolled out in the US and thousands of people were sterilized because like the human race is facing crisis. You know, we're getting stupider, we're de-evolving. So, we, you know, you know, we should be aware of religious and medical apocalyptic utopias. I'm really sure psychedelics aren't going to save the human race. Because I don't, you know, I, mean, I think we, I hope we're going to bumble along, but it, they might help yeah. some people. Yeah. It's uh, just, it's just not whatever could help in my mind would be far more holistic. It isn't, there isn't any one problem. And so there isn't any one solution. Yeah. And I fear that the growing psychedelic industry isn't positioning themselves as one part of the puzzle so much as the answer which I think has to be fueled by the desire to raise money. I promise you, you won't yeah. die. You know, what better sales pitch is there, you know? So yeah. it's just being but, so I mean, it's yeah. true. Go ahead. I think you're right. But like when I write critical pieces, I also think of that Theodore Roosevelt speech about the man in the arena. Like it's the man in the arena making decisions, you know, like they're, they're, do you know this speech? And there's someone in the audience watching and they can criticize, but it's really the man in the arena. That's what matters. Roosevelt was, you know, as you know, this extraordinary character is just full of energy and action. Yeah. And I'm very much the spectator. I'm the spectator saying, oh, this could go wrong. The people are getting hurt. <laughs> and someone like Rick Doblin, he's the evangelical, you know, slightly nutter, like utopia, let's go to utopia. Like this is going to make life so much better. And things change through enthusiasts like that. Yeah. You're like, everything's going to be better. And that's how, you know, the iPhone gets rolled out. And it's going to change everything. And then people like me say, yeah, but this is ruining our attention and this and that. Or, you know, so the internet gets invented by people saying, this is going to, you know, human race is going to evolve to a higher stage. And I'm like, yeah, but people are just looking at, you know, porn sites or something. Yeah. So I'm the kind of, you know, cynical old world spectator but you need both you do need yeah. enthusiastic nutters but you also need people to say you know well i don't know is, is communism definitely gonna help everybody you know what's this dictatorship of the proletariat that doesn't yeah. sound great you know yeah because things do constantly go to shit hey, i might argue along. with you about the overall benefit of the iphone i mean i agree i this is something i think about all yeah. the time too though like just and just the amount of quote progress whether you consider it good or bad progress that's driven by trauma i mean like what are we gonna do without people that are trying to fill voids you know that's yeah. true i'm i'm a skeptic and a, and a critic but i recognize that worlds aren't built by people like me that's a fair point <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Jules. This was awesome. I really enjoyed connecting with you. Do you want to tell people where they can find more of your work um, and your various projects and how to support what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. Well, my books are on Amazon and other places and in, and, you know, and in bookstores, if you're lucky. 
my the substack is ecstaticintegration.org. Our research project is challengingpsychedelicexperiences.com. Yeah. And I'm on like, you know, Twitter and Instagram as well if you want to see me at my worst. <laughs> well, I highly recommend your substack. That's what I was turned on to first and really enjoy your writing. So yeah, thanks again for taking the time. Thank you very much, Anya. Hello again, everybody. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jules. Please go check out his Substack and his work. I'm looking forward to reading his books, which I have not read. I feel such a sense of connection with the way that he sees the world, and I'm looking forward to exploring some of his ideas and his work further. Again, all of the links to sign up for our book club, to attend the Sex at Dawn retreat in August, to go to this very cool Horizons art exhibition in the valley here, and the Crestone Energy Fair. All of those links are in the episode description. And yeah, hope to see some of you in person somewhere in the world coming up. Don't think we're going to be doing a lot of in-person meetups this year. We will be taking the van up to Montana for the retreat and maybe stopping. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. But I'm here. I'm in one place for a while in Crestone and it feels good. And it's beautiful here. So if you like inspiring harsh landscapes and apocalyptic vibes that are actually really beautiful <laughs> come hang out all right uh i'm playing you out today with <laughs> a song that you'll have to forgive me for i want to get better by bleachers which i can't help but jam out to and shake my head like a punk rock teenager to the song came out a while after I was a teenager, but so much reminds me of the stuff that I listened to when I was a teenager. And I don't know, I think speaks to the sort of innocence that I try to remind myself of, of what we're all seeking and what we're all trying to do. And that even though we get lost along the way with the spiritual bypass insanity and some of the nutso capitalistic commodified <laughs> psychedelic stuff that we come up with like ultimately we're all searching for truth and for something to believe in and we want to get better and so if I can't find anything in common with other people or what they're doing annoys me I try to remember at least that and that helps for a little while at least all right everyone catch you next time
this morning early before my family From this dream where she was trying to show me How a life can move from the darkness She said to get better So I put a bullet where I should have put a helmet And I crashed my car cause I wanna get carried away That's why I'm standing on the overpass Screaming at myself Hey, I wanna get better 